The practicalities of the matter perhaps don't serve the atmosphere I've conjured for you. If this were a novel, I would have followed this ghostly boy out into the snow in my bare feet. I would not have felt the cold, perhaps, or would have been unheeding to its bite in the face of the supernatural. But sometimes the prosaic must intrude a few seconds outside onto the terrace and I was hopping in pain and dashing back inside to thrust on boots and pull my thick coat and scarf on over my thin pyjamas. And when I returned, appropriately armed against the winter night, the boy was nowhere to be seen. I peered about frantically searching for him. It was a clear night for the first time since our arrival, a constellation of bright stars and a bloated moon casting the grounds in an eerie winter subfusk. I caught a glimpse at some distance, shifting in the shadow of the topiary garden and hurried after it. Through the garden, through the root gate, through the maze, as sure-footed as hands had been, through the final gate. Above and ahead, the bell rang out. Past the ice house to the dell, that deep, dusky, supple pine bed where Hans's lovers had lain outstretched in furtive pleasure, where now the boy led me with his slender, outstretched arm to show me them waiting there boys. All of them. None older than eighteen, the youngest perhaps fifteen, and yet so brashly, heartbreakingly young in the way they look at me, lost, searching, forlorn. Just like the boy who had led me here, there was a sense that they were not quite here, not quite a part of the world, and yet in the strange luminescence of tonight's moon, in that shivering, tenebrous moment, to me they were keenly present and I was compelled to look more came. The bell rang as they passed through. They surrounded me, though I felt no sense of threat. They did nothing more than watch me with pleading, doleful eyes. They were mostly soundless, and yet as they clustered, a susurration sprang up. Perhaps nothing more than wind, but then again, perhaps voices. These were the soldiers with whom hands had made battle. They were a dismal army now. Who are you? What do you want? To see us. My hands, thrust deep in my pockets to stave off the cold, closed around my drawing pad. I pulled it out and flipped to an empty leaf. I crawled into the dell, bedded myself down amongst the fragrant needles, submerged myself in the scent of wild forest and wild sex and wild secrecy and looked up at the boys arranged on the lip of the dell, luminous against the dark sky. Draw, draw, draw until they breathe. For the next hour I drew, sketching each boy out in pencil until I had filled every page of the book on both sides. Draw until they breathe, I told myself, and that was what I did. All thirteen of them. Sleep in Bethlehem by Matthew Bright. Read by the author with additional voices by Philip Zielinski and Kat Wilson, and music by Patch Middleton. Episode 3 The Door That Opens.
sit down. We are going to talk today. Hans looked haggard. Dressed, just about, but unwashed and clearly the victim of an awful night's sleep. Though given my own circumstances, I was not particularly in the mood to sympathise. I didn't know whether he had stayed in my bed alone, or slipped off back to his own when I failed to return. For my own part, I had snatched sleep in fits and starts at the breakfast table, waking up as the sun rose over a newly gathering mist, face down on my drawing pad. He sat wearily opposite and covered his face with his hands in defeat. Can I at least get coffee first? Let's start with the cupboard in the hall. Which one? Green door, filled with empty luggage. He peeked through his fingers, confused. It's where we keep the luggage? Hans. If you don't give me a straight answer, I will pack up my things and I will go home. Honestly, Bärchen, I'm giving you a straight answer. It's where we keep the luggage. It's never been used for anything else, as far as I know. He looked beleaguered enough that I was inclined to believe him, and so I switched tack while I had him on the ropes. Right. Next question. What makes the house shake at night? You felt that too? I had been expecting another evasion, and so his confusion threw me off guard. I reached across the table to him and endeavoured to take his hands in mine. He allowed me, though, mechanically. Hans, <laughs> of course I do, for three nights now. I thought that was why you came to my room. I thought that was just in my... I... Never mind. Well, yes, mind. Before he could say anything else, the door opened to admit Koenig bearing a teapot and cups on a tray. Hands pulled away from me and settled back, looking grateful for the intrusion. He put on a show of enthusiasm, thanking Koenig as he set down the tray and meticulously dispensed its contents onto the table. Hans. Who knocks on your door in the night? The loud crash made us both jump. A china cup smashed across the table, fallen from Koenig's hand. He reared up like a startled horse, whipping his head back from hands to eye and back again, eyes wide and fearful. Well, clearly somebody knows. From Koenig emitted a sound that I had never before heard and still struggled to put description to. It was something akin to a howl, though more guttural, wordless, but communicating with a pure depth of fear and sadness that required no words at all to express itself vividly. His mouth was agape, and as this gut-wrenching sound ululated out of him, I saw for the first time the cause of his muteness. The red and inflamed stump was plainly visible, wriggling but incapable of shaping syllables. Hans sprang up, arms out as if to embrace Koenig, though once he was on his feet some vestige of propriety halted him, and all he did was lay his palm on Koenig's enormous shoulders. Eventually, Koenig relapsed into deep, juddery breaths. Hans and he shared a look, a secretive look I recognised it as, the look of two people with a private knowledge that by its definition excluded all spectators. Hans, who knocks in the night? Koenig took breath as if to begin his howling again, but Hans shook his head slowly at him. He ignored me, not so much as a twitch acknowledging my presence in the room, focusing all his attention on Koenig. I had one more card to play.
Uh, if you won't tell me, perhaps you'll tell me who these are. I unwound the catch of my sketch pad and let the papers spill out. The thirteen boys of the hollow, sketched out in ink. They fell across the table, amongst the broken china, fanning out. A slap rocked me back in the chair, so suddenly that I was sat back with my face smarting before I was even aware of Hans's movement. My vision blackened for a second, and then everything in the room seemed to jump, and now Hans was standing over me, his face a picture of pure, unadulterated rage gripping me by the lapels. Where? Where did you find them? I had never before found his physical presence intimidating, but this was a different person entirely. Another card turned up in the deck unexpectedly. Hans the Berserker, incandescent with anger, so detached from any iteration of Hans I understood that my entire body flushed hot with panic, a perspiring crackler of fear springing up through my pores. Where? Where did you find them? He shook me, clutching at me so tight that he must have been able to feel the frantic tattoo my heart beat against its protective cage, throbbing between his fingers. <laughs> I didn't find them anywhere. I drew them. He thrust against me so hard my chair overturned, and I tumbled to the ground in an ungainly heap. He towered, hands the fortress, implacable and impregnable below threatening clouds, and I backed away. You saw me, searching out in the dirt and the cold and... And, the, and you let me, even though you had the, the whole... the whole. His anger was burning out in front of me. The tower crumbled, battlements to dust, ramparts to sand, tumbled down to bare foundations, hands to his knees, sobbing. Tears flooded down his cheeks. Where did you find them? Just tell me where you found them. Where did I bury them? At last, a semblance of understanding pieced itself together. Is this... Is this what was in the tin you buried, Hans? Drawings? Where? Nowhere, Hans. Nowhere. These aren't your drawings, Hans. These are mine. I think... I think... Think what, Hans? I think you should go home this afternoon. You don't want me here? It's not that... These aren't your drawings, Hans. I don't know where they are. I drew these. They're my drawings. He clambered to his feet, backed away from me. I pursued him out into the hall. Hans! I drew them from life. He froze on the half-landing beneath the portrait. He looked up at his mother's face, expression inscrutable. I answered the knock. And I came downstairs, and there was a boy, and he led me out to the hollow, Hans. They were all there, but they weren't... I, they weren't exactly there, they were... Dear listener, I'm sure you have already arrived at the word long before I have. Reading events set out in the manner I have done so, it is much easier to put together the pieces than when one is knee-deep in the story oneself. So you'll have to forgive me that as I spoke, the word assaulted me as a revelation. Though to you, it will be barely anything of the kind. They were dead. All the more reason. Home. This afternoon. And then he stalked away up the second flight without another word. The last card in the pack hands the executioner, pronouncing an ending without so much as a tremor. 
In the breakfast room, I found Koenig wearily picking up after us, setting the chair back on its legs and sweeping the broken china into a pile. Koenig, I shall be requiring the car this afternoon. Perhaps you'd be so kind as to check the times of the train for me. In response, he gaped his mouth again and once more made that awful howling noise. He gestured at the drawings, trying to communicate something I had no hope of understanding. I don't know what you're trying to say to me. He grimaced and made the sound again. This time it formed a semblance of syllables, something a little like... Sorry. And then he backed away, ducking his head below the lintel, vanishing into the house to who knew where. So that was that then, I thought. The house had swallowed hands and Koenig and I was no longer required, no longer had any purpose here. If I ever even had in the first place. My fantasy of hands and I as partners, me the supportive lover in time of great need. That was in as fine a state as the poor done-for cup. I swept the pink and white shards carefully off the papers and gathered them together, each ink and line boy, and slid them back into my sketchbook. It was only then that I saw it. On the first page of my sketchbook was one of the copies I had made of the portrait of Hans's mother. Not my best, there were several others after that one, but it was not the realism of the portrait that struck me then. It was a single small detail that, while I must have seen it, I had obviously never seen. At her throat was a necklace, and on that necklace hung a key. I'll admit. This was when I should have gone home. Perhaps you might have, dear listener. Perhaps you would have done the sensible thing and packed up your things... Let Koenig drive you back to the station, fought your way through the snowdrifts, and packed yourself onto a train bound for the city. Let it race you away from Bethlehem, never to return. But I did not. The door fell open with a remarkable ease, practically springing open at the slightest pressure of my fingertip, precipitating an immediate feeling of discomfort as if my stomach wasn't already in enough turmoil just from approaching the building with tentative, nervous steps. It felt wrong for access to be this easy, as if I should somehow have been required to work harder to earn this audience, that there should have been trials, or at the very least a small amount of exertion involved, to be brought into the presence of... of the body. I determined to call it that, the body, clinical. We studied the body in our classes all the time, were taught to see the blood and bones and flesh and their shapes, mechanisms, nothing more. Nothing to fear. There was only one window in the ice house, a narrow rectangular one high up, above the level of the head, through which only the weakest shaft of light managed to pierce, though it was helped none by the burgeoning mist and a glowering of grey cloud that had filled the sky since early morning portending fiercer weather to come. Even at this relatively early hour, visibility was thin outside. Inside, it was practically non-existent, and so there were shadows. That was my predominant impression of the ice house as I first dared to step across its threshold. A congregation of shadows of subtly different hues. What had I imagined? 
I don't know now, but it was not what I found. The room was bare, nothing more than four plain walls, a flat, clean floor, and a bench that ran around three sides of the four. Nothing ornate. No dais, no altar. Was that what I had imagined? Perhaps, perhaps it was. The wild queen laid out in state. But instead, there was nothing but a hushed, mortuary sparseness and the dark shape of the body laid out across the far wall below a white sheet. It was the only thing clearly visible in the ice house, catching the dim light that seeped in. The sheet glinted, ice crystals I saw as I stepped closer. They coated it in a glimmering sheen that stiffened the fabric to the touch. I cautiously reached out to touch one corner and my brain experienced a flustered flip in discovering that the fabric felt beneath my fingers entirely unlike it appeared. It should have been pliable and soft but was instead a rigid thing, frozen into shape by the veneer of ice that had formed over it, until the force of my touch broke the tension and rivulets of tiny cracks exploded from every crease and fold of it and it became newly pliable in my grip. Knowing if I tried to do it little by little my courage would fail me, I drew it back in one bold tug. Her eyes were wide open, and when the sheet whisked away they immediately met mine. It felt as if I had been thumped in the chest. I felt it like a physical thing, a brutal shock that slammed into me and I leapt back involuntarily, colliding with the bench. She did not look like the painting. Artistic license, perhaps, but the deviation was shocking. The painting gave her a wild beauty, haughty, but with a certain natural warmth. Here, there was nothing of the kind. She was made entirely of angles, taut grey-white skin over sharp, angry points. In the painting, she was made of willow trees. In person, she was made of rocks. But the key still hung around her neck. I was right. Never before or since has the distance of a few inches felt so far. That was all it was, a few inches for my arm to travel through the air, for my hand to hover above her chest, for my fingers to gingerly pick up the key and pluck it from its chain. Yet. Those blue eyes watched me every step of the way, and I froze involuntarily a hair's breadth from the key. I was practically touching her, and suddenly, touch seemed the most foul thing I could imagine. The very thought of my fingertips brushing against her cadaverous skin made the gorge rise in my throat. Just a body. Pumps and chambers, sinews and pulleys. Just a body. Would she be warm? Of course not, I, I knew, but like the rigid sheet, the brain struggles to hold those two ideas together at once. Her body should be warm and her skin should be soft. When I touch her, she will snap her head around and she will reach out and wrap her fingers around my wrist and... No. No. She will be cold. She will be as cold as the snow that has buried her home. 
as the ice amongst which she is now kept, and when I touch her she will crack apart like that flower in my childhood garden, like a frozen lake collapsing in on itself, like the sheet across which the cracks had spread so easily her body will crumble in front of me and... I snatched the key. There was resistance, and my panicked brain supplied hands scrabbling for mine to snatch back their property, but it was nothing more than the chain catching, then stretching, then breaking. I stumbled back, chest heaving. All was still. The grey light didn't so much as waver. The body did not move an inch. Just a body. I thought again, she could not hurt me. Her eyes could not see, her feet could not walk, her hands could not grasp, especially her hands, for they were wrapped around something. I peered closer, seeing only now what it was, a slender black cane tipped at either end with silver. I heard the sound, heard it as the commanding rap of something sharp and hard against the door, and not simply as the treacherous sound of my own fearful heart striking the ribcage, and fled like a child. There was no hands at dinner. Perhaps he assumed I had done as he commanded and left, and therefore there was no point to attending. Or perhaps he assumed I had not done as he had commanded, and therefore his absence was pointed. There was also no Koenig, a fact that on a basic level was more problematic, as my heart-pounding venture to the ice house had left me ravenously hungry, and there was no meal prepared in the breakfast room. I mooched around the kitchen, rooting through cupboards, and managed to scare up a makeshift dinner of cold meat and cheeses. The green door waited patiently in the corner, unremarkable in the last of the day's light. I considered unlocking it and exploring then, but I had other plans. There was no hand in the night, either. I sat awake at the dressing table, alert and vigilant, until I felt the telltale trembling begin below the boards. I did not expect it, but found myself nonetheless hoping for a knock, hoping that despite the day's anger he might still come running to me for comfort in the night, and all our odds might be subsumed within the simplicity of a comforting embrace under the cover of darkness. But there was no knock until THE knock. And Hans's door. I waited, knowing he would ignore it. I would wait until I was called for, but no further knock was forthcoming, neither on his door nor mine, until I heard it sound further away down the corridor and knew all at once what I would see when I bolted to the door. Hans's door hung open, and I could see the shape of him receding away from me, the back of his shoulders visibly hanging defeated and obedient. I followed him. He walked the same way as he had that first night, with the awkward gait of a sleepwalker, as if he was moving not entirely of his own volition. But he was faster this time, as if his ability to resist the knocks that led him had diminished. On the corner, at the top of the stairs, and then descending downwards. I could picture it so clearly now, the silver tip on each stair, his mother leading the way, hands submissively in tow. Across the hall we went, down the kitchen corridor. 
I caught up with him there, hands standing as he had done that first night, facing the corner like a naughty schoolboy. His hand rested on the doorknob. Around him, the whole room shook, every item convulsing a strident, dissonant orchestra of horrors, striking up an accompaniment to our melodrama. Hands! The line of his body changed. He had heard me, but he did not otherwise respond. I crossed to him, took his elbow, and he startled out of his vacant compliance, making a wordless sound of incomprehension. I held up my hand and let the key fall and dangle on its broken gossamer light chain. I know how to open it. He grabbed my wrist, fingernails cutting the skin. I pulled free and slipped the key into the lock. It turned without so much as a whisper. The door fell open. Panicked hands spun me about, and first I saw Hans' face close to mine, red and sweating, spittle cannoning from his mouth as he shouted something that was snatched away by the crescendo of noise that surged around us, and then another, a sharp, white face that should not have been there, all angles, bright, bright blue eyes. Fingers darted towards my face, striking my forehead, and then there was nothing but a sticky, viscid blackness opening beneath my feet to swallow me whole. Master Fisher, please forgive the intrusion of this letter. I know that you do not know me, but you were an acquaintance of my son. He has talked fondly of you, and in particular of the aspirations you harbor for your career. He has explained at great lengths of how promising you were. This is the reason I am contacting you. As you may be aware, my late husband is the owner of a particularly successful mining business and we are eager to engage the services of somebody bright and enthusiastic. I wonder if perhaps you might be so kind as to attend us this summer at Bethlehem, our home near Zuambanasalt, to discuss this further. We will of course be happy to take the master stein. Please forgive the intrusion of this letter. I know that you do not know me, but you were an acquaintance of my son. He has talked fondly of you, and in particular of the aspirations you harbor for your career. He has explained the greatness of how I know that you do not know me, but you were an acquaintance of my son. He has talked fondly of you, and in particular of the aspirations you harbor for your career. He has talked fondly of you. There was still black, a hot, glutinous murk like drowning in molasses that stuck my eyelids together. But through it, a sound, at first distant and then breathlessly near. It was the sound of a voice, ragged and choking, dispassionately repeating words like a rosary. Each repetition was the same, but for a few small changes. Names, occupations. Some exertion, I opened my eyes. It felt like the morning after a hangover, bullying light and sound crowding in to overwhelm me. I was in the cellar, I could tell, or assumed at least. I had a feeling of subterranean, of being underground, though with my vision swimming, it was more sensed than seen. I was standing, but though nothing physically held me, I could not move of my own volition. My vision swayed. 
A butterfly floated through the groggy shadows. No, not a butterfly. Paper, a letter, had floated to the ground. Next. Breath tickled my ear. Someone, something, corrected the panicked, primordial part of my brain that was clamoring at me to run. Something was right behind me. The recitation began again. Master Stein, please there was Hamza's voice, strangled almost out of recognition. I know that you do not know me, but you were an acquaintance of my son. He has talked fondly of My faculties were slowly regaining a footing. The cellar was not the overgrown hole in the ground I had imagined, quite the opposite. There was a machine. The whole room was filled with tanks and pistons, wheels and tracks, cantilevers and gauges whose purpose I couldn't pass. They were turning and spinning and grumbling and thrusting and shaking. Enough, I understood, to shake the entire house that stood above it, quaking up from the rickety roots of the house, communicating their tremors and gyrations into every brick, board and nail of Bethlehem. The whole assemblage stank of cordite and copper, the sharp scent of photographer's flashbulbs that magnified a hundredfold. An enormous wheel turned ponderously in the centre of this chaotic jumble, and with every cycle a voltaic throb expanded outwards, setting the hairs on my neck standing on edge. From where, alert and wavering, they quivered to the breaths that rasped across my skin from the unseen figure hovering just behind me. In the centre of all of this was a chair. Nondescript, the kind you might find in an office or a cheap cafe, more horrifying in its banality than any of the apparatus surrounding it. Held tight by straps was hands. Wires snaked across the floor and disappeared somewhere behind it. Obscenely, the first thought that had dawned upon me was the perfect artistic composition of it, hands framed so perfectly by the turning wheel, as if it was an enormous halo. Hard could this be? Hands the coward? Hands the victim? Hands the sacrifice? Next. An exhalation stirred the nape of my neck. I smelled mulch and dirt. In Hans's lap lay a filthy mud-caked biscuit tin, dented and bent. From its open lid spilled a pile of papers, letters. The vines that choked the house were here too, winding amongst the machinery as if they themselves were the wires that connected circuit to circuit. I'm in the ground now, I thought, down here amongst the roots themselves, down below the dirt and the snow, down amongst the real bones of Bethlehem. And then a second thought dawning right after, down in the ground where we were going to bury her. Hans bent his hands awkwardly to pluck the next letter from the pile. He began to read it, the same words with a new name. And so the next, and the next, and the next after that, each time the voice commanding him until only one sheet of paper remained and a sheaf of letters lay at Hans' bound feet. Stop! Obediently, he clumsily pushed the lid back onto the tin. A darkness darted across my vision, from one shadow to another. 
I caught only a glimpse of its form, oblique, flitting shape, something like a woman, but also like something springy and elongated whipping across the room. The tin flew from Hans's fingers, clattering across the ground. I felt it rebound from my feet, though I was still powerless to move against it. I warned you. I told you what happens to men like you. You know the good book as I do. Tell me, what happens to men like you? Hans's head hung pliant and flimsy against his chest. His eyes were squeezed shut, though whether tearful or fearful I couldn't tell. Death. Tell me. Death. Louder! Death and torment. I tried my best to move, to in some way draw his attention, to signal that he was not alone, to break whatever bond it was held me and rush to free him, but to no avail. But not for you. Not for me. Those words sounded practiced, catechistic, as if he had spoken them a hundred times before. Why not for you? Because my mother loves me. Because your mother loves you. You shall be grateful, despite being tested by your filthy habits. You have a mother who understands how to help you. You do want to be helped, don't you? Don't you? His lips formed a yes, and then that flicker of shadow again, that sensation of movement in my peripheral. We shall begin. Hans pulled forward as far as his restraints allowed him, pushing his head down towards his knees. Look! Look! And resignedly Hans lifted his head and looked straight into my eyes. Are you aroused? Are you excited? Are you upright? Reluctantly, Hans nodded. Your mother loves you. There was a metallic clunk, a sizzle, and Hans screamed. Every hair on my body sprang to attention with an electric crackle, and opposite me, Hans spasmed violently in the chair. The flashbulb smelled the wires. The chair, understanding, shot through me a kinder dose than what shot through Hans. After a painfully long moment, it ceased and Hans collapsed, shaking back into his chair. The shadow moved at my back. You are in the window. I knew somehow that it was no longer addressing Hans. These words were for me. My arm moved by itself, free of any bodily autonomy I might have applied to it. My fingers fumbled the button of my collar, clumsily loosening and then descending, each button springing open. At the last button, my nightshirt hung open and I felt something plucking at my neck. The shirt slid down my shoulders and pulled at my feet. Are you aroused? Weakly, he nodded and again, a wet patch bloomed between Hans's legs. So much electricity was shooting through him, he had lost control of his body. Your mother loves you. Please. No more. Please. You are still in the window. Something scuttled down my spine.
My own treasonous fingers pulled at the drawstring of my trousers. When they too had sunk to the ground, I stood there exposed as Hans was subjected for a third time to the machine. He didn't scream out loud this time, just gritted his teeth and roared into the back of his own throat. When this bout was done, he hung like a rag doll, held up only by the straps at his wrist. Lips against my ear. Turn around! I closed my eyes as I turned. I had no desire to see what stood behind me. I already knew what face I would see. Son, do you renounce? The smell. That graveyard smell like vegetables left to rot, forgotten in a cupboard, blasted into my face. I heard nothing from Hans, though God only knew if by this point he was even capable of speaking. Son, do you renounce? Son, do you renounce? stairs in front of me, stairs leading up to a green door. No! Because I cannot. You cannot! No. Why? Because... Because I love him. Sounds of cycling and whirring faltered and slowed. The machines abated, the shadows tensed like living things and then released me. I had control of my arms and legs again and unprepared I buckled. I landed painfully with the biscuit tin jabbing into my stomach, glimpsing a blurred flash of hands slumped in the chair, a willowy figure standing over him. A coppery whoosh of machinery zipped across my vision and then nothing but the dark ceiling from which spiralled a single glinting snowflake. It glided elegantly past my vision, apparently utterly unconcerned by the impossibility of its presence. Here you will have to forgive me if my narrative is less than clear. I'm still not quite certain of how events unfolded myself, though I have done my best to piece them together since. Perhaps you will make more sense of it than I. The green door fell in, revealing behind it an enormous Koenig-shaped bulk, and behind Koenig, Hans's army. They blew into the room on a gust of lancinating wind, cascading down the steps into the cellar. They poured around me, over me, descending on the chair. The shadow, Hans's mother, was swept up amongst them, a single bending bow, powerless against their mighty storm, impotent to prevent the hands that lifted her and bore her up on their shoulders. The whole house shook anew, quaking with a ferocity I had not experienced before. The machines rocked and grew. Dials leaped and gas jettisoned from burst gaskets, clouding the room with burning, shrieking steam. The ceiling flexed as if the entire foundations were agitated. Vines tightened and stretched as everything shifted, and with them the p- 
pipes and components that held together the machine sprang loose of their moorings and collapsed in on themselves. Through this barreled Koenig, he ripped open the bindings that tethered hands and lifted him as easily as if he was a baby, and a moment later myself too, hauled up naked and flung over his shoulder. Up the stairs the phantom surged, their prize borne aloft, us in pursuit, bursting up into the kitchen like a flood, bursting its banks. The glass doors flew open and off went Hans's army into the pitch black night beyond. A violent fissure shot through the kitchen slabs, darting from one to the next like an infection. Without a second's pause, Koenig hauled us onwards, lurching up the corridor and into the hall. Here was even worse, the floorboards capered beneath our feet and I could hear the ping of nails as they ripped free. The floor dipped like a sea, the stairs sagged then gave way in one tumultuous rush. The first flight to the half-landing caved in as if it was made of nothing more substantial than paper and vanished down into the earth. The portrait of Hans's mother shook free from its hangings and plummeted. It landed on its bottom edge and then tilted slowly forward and plunged into the hole. Far out in the grounds, the sound of a bell cut through the rest of the noise. It chimed over and over, faster and faster, as if a stampede was passing it, ringing and ringing until with an anguished, arcing chime it soared free from its moorings and fell silent forever. We buried the body the next morning without ceremony. Hartman and son were summoned and explained to in no uncertain terms precisely what they should do. Hans picked one of the gardens, a plain one, he said, with no buildings or adornments. Nothing more than a patch, really, that was the way he described it. The undertaker sank a hole six feet deep and the body, rewrapped in nothing more than its icy sheet, was lowered into it. There was no coffin no priest and no words spoken. Hans waited just long enough to see the body into the ground and then turned and walked away, leaving Hartman Jr. to shovel dirt back into the hole he left behind. The house was split like an earthquake. Much of it had survived, but a crater ran through the centre of the downstairs into which the remains of the stairs and landings wilted. We had retrieved our things from the upstairs rooms and, fearing a further cave-in, had taken up residence in the drawing room and breakfast room. The boys were waiting for us when we returned to the house. They sat around the table and watched us. They seemed to no longer be troubled by the daylight. Draw until they breathe, I thought, and wondered if perhaps this was my doing. But I suspected it was not. We buried the boys with all the honour we could muster in the circumstances. When that night was over and everything was at last calm, I discovered that in our flight from the cellar I had been clutching the biscuit tin, and it seemed as fitting a coffin as anything. We gathered the drawings I had made and passed solemnly through the grounds, through the maze, up past the now empty ice house to the hollow. The bell did not sound when we passed. 
After that night, it was broken beyond repair. Kneeling opposite each other amongst the pine needles, hands dug a hole in the centre. He sat cross-legged, holding the biscuit tin in his hands, staring at the lid. I rested a hand on his shoulder. Hands? Are you okay? It's one thing to hate her for what she did to them, but the one thing I'll never forgive myself for after she caught me and had the doctor come. Yes, that's what happened. I suppose you don't know the story. She found me with a man, Louis he was called, he lived in the town. She had people come and install the machine in the cellar so she could, so that I had to do what she wanted. I had to renounce it, that's what it was called, renounce them. But she didn't even know there was a them. She knew about Louis, obviously, but none of the others before him. I knew I had to put them away, but I want them to, I don't know, I wanted them to live on. They couldn't be entirely gone, so I drew them as I remembered them, and I buried them where no one could find them. And that was enough. But instead, she found them. She believed it was out of love. No, she didn't. Not really. And do you know how I know that? Because she didn't try to save them. When she wrote all those letters full of her horrid promises and lured them here. As monstrous as it is, if she'd strapped them to the chair and filled them full of electricity, I'd understand. But she didn't. She just had them murdered. As punishment. And then... She left the box for me to find, with all the letters, so I would know what she had done. I didn't know what to say that could possibly make even a stone's ripple on the deep lake of sorrow that was dammed up inside him right in that moment. Instead, I pressed the sheaf of drawings into his hand. He lifted the first and inspected it. Jonas, he was the son of my French student. He folded it carefully into four and lifted the lid off the tin. Inside, there remained a sheet of paper. He plucked it out and unfolded it. One side was covered in close, neat handwriting. He scanned it, and as he did so, he started to laugh. Well, at least another mystery is solved. What is it? It's the will, and if further proof was needed that nothing was done out of love, this would be it. She didn't leave me the house. The immediate sale of all property and assets to be donated in full to the Nationalsozialistische Deutsche Arbeiterpartei for the benefit of the cause. Oh, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Don't be. I feel... I feel free. One by one, we worked through the drawings of the boys. Hans named them, names I recognized from the trunks in the locked hall room, and carefully folded each picture away into the tin. Then he set the lid firmly atop, lowered it into the hole he had made and gently filled in the mud and needles atop it. May they finally rest their bones. Hans nodded solemnly. But there was no such rest for them. When we returned to the house, we found them still waiting for us, ringed around the table, silent and utterly unmoving. That afternoon, we packed our things in our trunks and elected to set out for a return journey away from Bethlehem. We looked for Koenig in vain. We had not seen hide nor hair of him since he had carried us up from the cellar. Uh, do you blame him? I'm surprised he wasn't carried away by the boys along with your mother. Surely he knew about them too. 
Perhaps. What? And about what she did to you? How could he stand by and say nothing? He didn't. He spoke up for me, and then he never spoke again. You mean she? Yes. My God. Yes. But he stayed? He's the fifth generation of his family to serve at Bethlehem. We searched the house, those parts that were still navigable, but turned up no sign of him, apart from his ring of keys on a nail in the hallway. I couldn't say I blamed him. Wherever we turned, we'd find one of the boys, watching us with lacrimose, imploring eyes. They never said anything, but even a glimpse of one of them engendered a flood of guilt in me that we were preparing to leave them behind to haunt the ruins of Bethlehem alone. But what else could we do? Finally, admitting defeat, Hans took the key from the ring and led us out to the car. It took three attempts to get the exhausted old thing started. I hadn't known Hans could drive, and judging by his white-knuckled grip on the wheel, I wasn't convinced he could. But at least we were moving. The rest of the trip did nothing to persuade me of his abilities. Moments after our departure, a snow cloud broke and we were immediately lost in an impenetrable blizzard. We inched cautiously through the snow, the wheels spinning and slithering. Bethlehem had vanished in the rear view within a few feet's journey, so thick was the snow, and it took us twenty minutes before we reached the main gate, a journey that should have only taken a few moments. We fared no better on the road beyond, and within the hour we were hopelessly stuck at the bottom of a shallow incline that nonetheless was completely impassable in these abject conditions. No amount of engine revving nor us heaving against the back of the car with our boots skidding in the snow could coax the car forward, and eventually we had no choice but to give up, and wrapping ourselves tightly in our coats, trudge back along the deep tyre tracks underneath the iron roots with their thick metal letters and up the long drive to the house. And as Christmas Eve darkened, we sought shelter in Bethlehem once more. The boys waited for us behind the front door, silently welcoming. Which was how we came to pass a Christmas with ghosts. The storm hung overhead for five more days. Each morning, Hans and I would wake on the mattress we had dragged downstairs, disentangle from each other and dress. We'd make a breakfast from the remains of the larder that we had salvaged and hole up in the drawing room. Sometimes we drew, sometimes we drank. Sometimes I asked him to tell me about one of the boys, how he met them, what they had done together, how it had ended. Sometimes the boys sat with us. They tended to herd together, but not always. We found they flocked to the warmth. In the mornings, we might be eating breakfast with one of them in attendance, sitting beside Hans or I, watching us. By evening, when skies darkened and we stoked the fire, they usually gathered. As the days wore on, we started to run out of things to talk about, and began to tell the boys tales of Paris. Hans lay on his back, describing the city to them, his favourite dive bars, the clubs he frequented with his friends, the petty rivalries of the showgirls he circulated amongst. He described our attic and our street. He told them how free Paris was, how he and I could go there and know nobody would try to do to us what his mother did. How no one would hurt us in Paris like that, ever again. I listened to him tell these stories and wondered, 
was as how he really saw Paris. The picture he painted of freedom did not chime with the hands who had crept away in the morning light every time he had slept in my bed. But now that I knew what had befallen him in the year before he had fled to Paris, I saw it all afresh. I saw hands in his attic at night, knowing that there would be no knock of a cane on his door, and yet still unable to sleep. I saw him rise from his bed and dance across the street to take refuge with me to rest his bones where he was safe. I resolved that there was to be no more knocking on doors once we returned to Paris. All this talk reminded me of my portfolio of paintings, the multitude of Hanses that hung in my attic. The idea of him as a jumble of different personalities had been juvenile, I realised, but now a new idea struck me. I dug up a fresh pad and began to draw the boys all over again. And in the course of that night I laid out another new tarot, but this time, instead of only Hans' faces, I painted in each of the boys Elias the Bard, Moritz the Blacksmith, Felix the Doctor, Benjamin the Scribe, until I had a full deck. Only on the fifth night did I realise and felt utterly foolish for not having done so before. The trunks below the stairs had not been empty. They had all held something inside them, something about, I realised with horror, the weight and consistency of bones. We filled the hollow and covered it back over with our bare hands, and when we returned to the house, there was nobody sat at the table any longer. On the eighth day, finally, the weather cleared, and clear skies dawned above Bethlehem. Hans and I decided that at last we dared to venture out. Do you want to say your goodbyes to the house? Buddy shook his head. He had already done that a week ago, and had no plans to do so again. Free of snowstorms, the car was a depressingly short distance away from the house, and we managed with some effort to heave it out of its rut and persuade the engine begrudgingly to start and we trundled into town and left it parked on the curb by the train station. I waited outside Hartman and Sons while Hans delivered the will inside and watched the small village come sleepily to life. I saw someone braving the sleety square to knock on the surgery door and remembering Hans's description of the town, wondered idly whether the casualty was human or animal. Moments later, I spied a nervous-looking gentleman entering the greengrocers and smirked to myself and shortly Hans returned, looking cheerful. And that is that. The train chugged into the station half an hour later, and I had the sensation drowning sailors must experience at first sighting sails on the horizon. The guard dragged our trunks aboard, and we navigated ourselves to an empty compartment, settling in as the engine roared and Zubana's health accelerated away from the window. We vanished into pines, leaving everything behind us and far, far out of sight. I sang absently to myself, staring out of the window. A boy, a boy, a boy so the train shot into a tunnel, and with everything dark for a moment, I saw our faces reflected back, pale and alive, and behind us, thirteen others. And then we were back in the light. Hans's hand crept into mine, 
and he sang back softly to me. And this time I let him. A boy, a boy, a boy so blue. A boy so blue with love for you. That was No Sleep in Bethlehem by Matthew Bright. Read by the author with additional voices by Philip Zielinski and Kat Wilson and music by Patch Middleton. Audio production was by Ink Spiral Design and the novella No Sleep in Bethlehem originally appeared in the short story collection Stories to Sing in the Dark. We hope you have enjoyed this production.